Hello, I'm Katherine Stanley, Chair of the Organizational and Leadership Psychology Department at William James College. We are educating organizational psychology professionals to assist leaders and their companies in meeting their goals while creating thriving and vibrant internal workplace cultures. Our graduates work in for-profits and not-for-profits in all industries, from large and boutique consulting firms to military and government. For those of you who are new to our podcast series, Leadership Hacks, it will air once a month to examine timely topics and current events through the lens of organizational and leadership psychology. By sharing the psychology that influences individuals, teams, and whole systems, we endeavor to help you shift your thinking and see the world in a new way. With this new perspective, you can discover innovative approaches to solving the complex problems all business professionals face. We hope the insights offered by our experts are helpful to you as you tune in. John Dioria is president of Teachers 21, a nonprofit professional development organization that supports educators so that they can better serve the needs of all students. He his career has spanned four decades, starting as a math teacher, guidance counselor, principal, and superintendent. Dr. Dioria has worked with hundreds of school leaders around sharpening the academic focus of school teams, developing a vibrant school culture, and managing conflict in the workplace. Dr. Dioria's research focuses on ways in which assumptions that people hold about intelligence significantly influence their learning. This summer, he's collaborating with me to do a three-day workshop on using leadership and organizational psychology to develop leaders of school systems. The challenges these leaders and systems face require a new type of leadership and school culture that vastly differs from what has been acceptable for decades. He's here to share his unique perspective with us today. John, I'm so glad you get to come and talk with us today and we get to hear from you and any leaders out there get to hear from your experience. So tell me what you think the biggest challenges are facing our schools, their leaders and teachers today. Well, I think one of the big challenges is the fact that um, there's a lot of fast-moving fields that are adding to our knowledge and experience about learning, whether it's neuropsychology, whether it's uh, social-emotional learning, what we know about um, child development, what we know about technology, special needs, and the advances are happening so rapidly. I think one of the challenges that we face in schools is how do we uh, extract the best thinking from this new, these new advancements without overwhelming people? Yeah. Because I think, uh, you know, we want people to be fresh and absorbing new knowledge and new skills. Um, but, you know, it has to be done in balance. And I think the, the rate of change and the amount of change can easily overtake um, a faculty and a set of leaders. And trying to figure that out, I, I think, is a pretty significant challenge. I think the expectations of major stakeholder groups have changed as well because of social media and a lot of the information sharing and transparency that's just available and expected now. That's a whole other... Huge, huge. I think, yeah. um, you know, I think we're in a field where, you know, aspirations are really high, yeah. but our methodologies are still, you know, uh, we're trying to figure things out, but that gap between what we can accomplish and what people expect is getting wider. Yeah, yeah. And I also think that schools in particular, and especially their leaders and teachers, are between this rising changes in the culture and 
society changes and they're like right at the epicenter of that because you know obviously taking care of our children right, right, right. And their education is a massive massive undertaking and, and huge importance in society but it does intersect with parents obviously with teachers yeah. uh, and with communities uh, because they ultimately have to fund the schools yeah. and and so how do we you know negotiate you know those various perspectives is yeah. you know a unique aspect of schools yeah so I got to know you about a year and a half ago now. Yeah. And uh, when we came together to collaborate about developing a summer institute around leadership for schools. Um, and we know that, I know from my research that an interdisciplinary approach is key to radical innovation, um, you know, which is needed to ensure healthy and inclusive schools. Um, so to this end, regarding you know what we've been talking about around org psychology and methodologies and some of the models we've been discussing, tell me what intrigued you about like a multidisciplinary approach, but in particular bringing some of the things we use all the time as organizational development practitioners and psychologists into building change. Well, I think there are two things that are really exciting about this that I hope this summer we can bring to more people in the field of education. I think one of it is right now the way many schools are going about trying to improve is by trying to build individual capacities. Mm. And so, you know, what, what could we do to take teacher A and make him or her more uh, effective? How could we take principal B and make her a little bit more effective? And I think that approach is, is an important one, but I think what some of the things you and I have discussed and I've actually learned from you is that the conditions within which people work in an organization is pretty influential and can actually affect that capacity. And I think learning how uh, the culture, the climate, the conditions that people work in, um, work in is both malleable and influential, I think is key. So that's a huge idea. And I think the other thing that's really becoming clearer and clearer to many of us is the fact that in the end, the power of teaching rests partially but significantly in the relationships between teachers and students and similarly between principals and teachers and superintendents and it's in that relationship that psychology really plays an important role the psychology of emotions the psychology of how we understand each other and it either um, really accelerates or catalyzes that uh, relationship or it impedes it and I think a lot of improvement in schools oftentimes gets blocked or slowed down because we're not paying attention to those psychological dynamics. And, and so I think that's the other thing that gets me very excited. I was speaking to one of your colleagues this morning and I said, you know, um, school psychologists play a very important role in schools and oftentimes principals quickly see them as people who can help them as a thought partner, move a school forward. Although in other schools, school psychologists kind of get stuck doing testing. And I said, we really should change the last name of psychologist to psychology. Mm. But if people understood that these are experts in school psychology, right. I think we could extract from them many of the learnings that you and I have discussed and we hope to transmit over the summer. You're reminding me that there's also a learning curve around uh, and then we face this as organizational psychologists in in businesses, right? Whether you're in the human resources or talent management or org effectiveness role, training the leaders and people you work with about how to use your skills and to understand those skills, which is really hard, right? Yeah. 
especially if people don't have a lot of practice in that right. in terms of self-reflection, if they don't see it as central yeah. to their work, and how do you convince them that paying attention to their own reflections is instrumental in their leadership? Um, you know, it, it can feel to people that, you know, it's, it's a side part, it's right. not central. And trying to, um, you know, illuminate that, I think is what we're thinking about this summer, we're hoping to really shine a light on that. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think, you know, that parallel process of you're only as good a leader as you are as in terms of understanding your own self-awareness. So that's one massive challenge, whether you've been raised in the school of that's squishy and that's soft, therefore unimportant, or just the fact that you start to try and do that and it's terribly hard, right? It's yeah. really, you face a lot of painful things sometimes and it's, you know, hard work. On top of that, you know, explaining, oh, and by the way, <laughs> on top of that, there's this group psychology phenomena that has a life of its own that manipulates you every day you're in the leadership role. <laughs> right, right. right. Like it's it's quite a, it's quite a, it could be quite daunting. Um, and and for me I think um, out of all those things that you just mentioned, you know, the, the challenge of facing some difficult feelings and processing them as well as group psychology, I think the foundation though is how do you uh, get leaders to uh, really embrace the idea that you know, their their own work has to come first yeah. when they may not have uh, any practice in that. And I think that's, you know, uh, I, I think it's even more complicated from my perspective when you layer on gender and culture. Yes. So, yes. you know, just speaking as a guy, you know, I think there's a lot of things that I have to fight just, you know, from my concept of what sort of guys are supposed to do. Yeah. And I think, you know, culture obviously plays a role in that. So it, it's a complicated field, but an exciting one. That's why I like the hard science that's coming into it around the use of neuroscience applying this and really being able to now get a view into followers' brains about what certain types of leader behaviors actually, what impact they actually have, you know? So, because it's, it's, in a way, it's not the leader's fault because they've been raised in here's these role models from 20, 30 years ago, and here's what's acceptable, and now suddenly it's not, so the tables are turned, right? And so sometimes those reasons for change need to be, well, when you do command control style leadership where you're you know, telling people what to do in a strong voice and maybe frowning, they go right into their flight, fight, freeze response, you know? So, and what does that mean, and what does that look like? And also, by the way, this is normal, right? right. So there's a lot around that. Um, you know, I do think people realize that they've invested a lot of time and a lot of strategies to try to improve schools, and in some cases, it, it, we've seen some good progress, but in other areas, I think all that energy and time has not produced the kind of forward progress we want. There are a lot of educators who feel like we're suffering from initiative fatigue, mm. and I think that... Um, you know, the, the inequality that still exists when we look at our schools nationally. I mean, Massachusetts is often ranked as top in the United States, and despite those achievements, we still have, you know, um, subgroups of students who are really not prospering. Mm -hmm. And we have schools, oftentimes, you know, in our urban areas because they are, you know, the most concentrated forms of poverty where we're not 
really giving to our children, you know, the opportunities. And so, you know, I, I feel that if we can demonstrate that paying attention to these areas can actually move the needle on, on some of these big uh, challenges where we've been stuck yeah. for a long time, I think people will begin to see it as much more promising and willing to overcome whatever uncomfortableness they may have. And new skills development, yeah. right? Um, along with those realizations, it's like, what do I do now? How do I act now? Who should I be now? Which is a massive learning curve, which is your area of research, right? Yeah. People's attitude around learning. Um, so what do, would you say leaders in this context, which is you know evolving and changing rapidly, what do leaders need to borrow from organizational psychology to manage change, do you think? Well, I think one of the things they need to borrow is that um, they have to realize that um, you know seeing the system that is keeping you know us stuck mm -hmm. is one of the most powerful things a leader can do. You know, it's that old saying that you know every system is perfectly designed to yeah. achieve exactly the results it's getting. Exactly. And I think once leaders begin to rely more on the fact that it's a system that's keeping us stuck rather than flawed individuals, mm -hmm. I think that um, there'll be both new strategies and new hope. Yeah. So I, I would say that is one of the most significant things that I hope that they can really see and learn to embrace. Yeah, that's such a truism in management too, right? Like, well, I removed the bad apple and wait, the system's still, <laughs> you know, or, or the role where you have the person who gets, everybody in that role continues to get fired. Right, and right. then you start to think, well, maybe it's something with the system or that role. Yeah. So, um, and in terms of that, I was thinking, do you have like any examples that would be helpful for our leaders out there of some of the work you do and, and how it might have impacted positively for change and breaking through these challenges? You know, I, I think um, in one district where I'm working, they have noticed that despite the fact that if you look at the aggregate data. Um, you know, the students have a terrific graduation rate. They have, they're getting into high quality colleges. Um, their SAT scores are strong, their AP scores. But if you look and, and disaggregate the data, you notice that there are certain groups of kids, sometimes students who are on education plans, sometimes students have been impacted by poverty or homelessness or trauma. And when you look at their progress, you notice that they're not making progress. Mm -hmm. Or worse yet, as they proceed through the schools, the achievement gap is actually growing. And so school, school leaders who don't want to accept simply you know, the benefits of aggregate success yeah. and really want truly embrace the idea that we have to get better for all our kids, you know, oftentimes I'll work with a leadership team and we'll try to understand what is the system that's keeping us stuck because it's not like people haven't tried, they haven't done professional, you know, done a lot of professional development, uh, they've taken courses, they have experts come in. And in, in one of the districts where I'm working, it, it was really interesting to have them lay out some of the possible factors that were contributing to this. So, so clearly engaging pedagogy and um, rich curriculum are in the mix, uh, but so are other things like um, 
you know, whether or not teachers actually believe mm -hmm. that certain kids are capable of achievement. You know, you get into this whole, what's the mindset of teachers and what's the mindset of, it's, it's not the only factor, but it is a factor. Or what's, what's the willingness of, of the system of supervision and evaluation? How does it either encourage teachers to experiment with new strategies, or how does it sort of make it risky to do that so teachers keep on repeating similar strategies that have worked with some of the kids, but not all the kids. So we've looked at the supervision and evaluation system. We've looked at how elementary uh, schools hand off the students to middle school and how middle schools hand off. Those transition points are often places where we lose a lot of knowledge that was really gathered. So in, in working with this district, they came up with really a robust list of factors that were contributing uh, to this staticness. And that was a significant change from the notion that the reason why we're stuck is because teachers needed to gain new knowledge. Mm -hmm. That was sort right. of where they started. They don't have this knowledge. Right. That became a cliche, right? Yeah, and yeah. So, so I think you know, it's a long process, and now they're starting to address some of the issues that they developed in their systems map, yeah. um, which is, is good. And we'll have to see over time whether or not these strategies pay dividends. If not, we have to go back to the drawing board. But even that, to me, is progress. Yeah, I think you're right about not looking at the data in the aggregate and checking the box. Here we go, we're good, you know? And one thing you, you said, oh, many things you said that struck me, but especially this idea that ha teachers' perceptions of students and believing what they can accomplish, right? We all know those studies where the teachers were told the students who were the A students were the D students, mm -hmm. and then another teacher was told that the students they had were the ace, you know, the, the D students when they're actually the A students, and guess what the grades turned out, right? right. What their perception was. Um, you know, so there's a multiple of like perceptual cognitive bias, right, as well as, um, you know, uh, implicit bias around race and gender and, you know, which really impacts students, right? That's that pipeline from eighth grade into the prison system of young black boys, right? So these are massive problems and the microaggressions that those children experience too. Right? And that's that kind of level of self-awareness to catch a microaggression and be able to have the conversation about it. I find in doing this work that it's the conflict averseness that stops it in its tracks. People are so afraid to even try to have a dialogue around it, which makes it almost impossible to change and learn and work together. <laughs> and, and, to con and, and it's the dialogue that suddenly allows us to say, hey, we're both human here. <laughs> you know, let's not make that person other, you know, which is always less than human which has been going on, obviously, between groups for ever, but. And I think that's the other thing that, you know, we hope to bring this summer, besides the, this notion of systems thinking, is yeah. the importance of uh, allowing people to have the dialogue, but also providing them the skills to get through the often scary part when you realize that someone who has a different perspective, perhaps a different set of values, well, what do we do when we reach that point? Do we just walk away? Right. Do we, you know, sort of start calling each other names? Obviously, right. we don't want to do that, but how do we get unstuck at that moment? And so our discussions about how do you create sort of dialogue where we can think together even though we're coming from different places, that is a wonderful set of skills that I think if you can hone them as a leader, you're going to be able to have these conversations with your faculty who don't, may not agree with you. Right. 
with your parents who yeah. may not agree with you, with your students who may not agree yeah. with you, with uh, municipal leaders who may not agree with you, because our only hope is to sort of uh, support that kind of dialogue so that we can figure out ways of building bridges. Yeah. Uh, but it's a skill set that yeah. many people find anxiety producing. Yeah. Right, or just completely foreign, because nobody right. said to be a principal, you need to know how to do this, or right. to be right. a parent, or to be a student, right? right. So, um, yeah. So, what energizes you around this interdisciplinary approach to managing change and building different cultures and trying to solve these massive problems? Well, you know, I, I, I continue to think that if we could make progress in um, making sure that um, schools work for all kids, not just for some kids, yeah. that it will have tremendous benefits to our society. And I think we will be healthier as a nation and I think we will capture more of the resources that are available to us in, in the wonderful people we have. But right now, uh, we're stuck. You know, not from lack of trying, but I think the gaps that we've seen, um, the predictions that we know about uh, how um, you know certain of our schools are really struggling to serve um, the least advantage of, mm -hmm. of the students, I think, um, has been a you know sort of a career effort of mine to try to figure that out and unpack it. And I think what gets me excited is that the world of organizational psychology has opened up a new set of tools and strategies and connections that I think um, lend themselves to helping us make progress. Yeah. So that hope is pretty energizing. Yeah, that's good. Um, and so if you could give advice for leaders of school systems, what would you say would help them right now today? Well, you know, I think some of the things that we talked about, I think, um, you know, to really try to expand your skill set around viewing the power of systems uh, to influence outcomes. Uh, I think the second thing is to really hone your skills around embracing dialogue and conflict because even though it's scary and there's always the potential that the conflict can send us further apart, unless you really approach that and realize that you got to get to that point in order to build bridges to people, uh, you have to understand where you come at things differently and understand that and then work to build a bridge. And then I think the last thing is that, you know, that, you know, it's a false dichotomy to think there's the cognitive side and the emotional mm -hmm. side. And I, and I think for too long in schools, we thought of our work as mostly cognitive and maybe those guidance counselors and school psychologists deal with the other side. But more and more we're seeing that that's a false dichotomy and that it's really a united, there's, there's you know, thought emotion or whatever you want to call it and you got to really be sensitive to all aspects of that in order to deepen people's learning. And that's exactly it. And our emotions inform our thinking all the time. And it's such a misnomer to say they don't, right? I know. Oh, I just made a logical decision, right? Yeah, I know. Yeah. I, know. <laughs> I think the other thing you're talking about too reminds me that leaders have to 
everybody has to start to embrace their own shadow behaviors and forgive themselves for being human, which is... Right, so they can forgive others, right? Yeah, exactly, and develop empathy internally. So, China, it's so good to talk to you today. Thanks for being... Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> All right. Thank you for listening to this month's podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and you found it interesting. To listen to future editions, please subscribe to our SoundCloud and iTunes channels. To find out our next topic, follow us on Twitter at WilliamJamesEDU or visit the Organizational and Leadership Psychology main page at William James College.